1: that we're gonna republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm gonna stop talking. Historians love to argue about the drivers
0: of history. Who are the agents of change? Is it kings and queens or institutions or explorers sailing oceans? Or, perhaps, is it the oceans themselves? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Helen Roswidowski talks about the history of the oceans and how these oceans have shaped human history in really profound ways. Roswydowski is a professor of history at the University of Connecticut, Avery Point. She's the author of many books, including Vast Expanses, A History of the Oceans, just out this year with Reaction Books. Helen Roswydowski, thank you for talking with me.
2: Oh, thanks for inviting me.
0: So your book, Vast Expanses, it's really a global history as told from the perspective of the oceans. What was your goal in changing this perspective?
2: Well, one way I could uh, approach that question is to point to the way I decided to start the book. I wanted to have a kind of a a part of the book that went back to evolutionary time and geologic time. And I decided to write a very deliberately ocean-centric natural history of the planet because so many uh, versions of this kind of writing really once land is formed and things live on land hardly mention the ocean at all. And so I really took uh, quite a bit of delight in mentioning that dinosaurs happened to roam the Earth during the age of mollusks, for example.
0: (laughs) I loved that. The age of oysters.
2: Yes, the age of oysters.
0: Yeah, in fact, I was wondering if you could... Why is that let's say equally or an even better framework for that period of time than let's say the age of dinosaurs?
2: Well, mollusks mollusks of all kinds, oysters uh among them ruled the the seas of the earth at that point and were probably as characteristic probably more characteristic and more numerous than dinosaurs. So why not?
0: Yeah, I was uh I was really surprised at the way that you Put the first chapters of this book together, because I think for for people who are listening who are not historians and they hear you know the term history, uh, it might just be the study of the past, but you and I know that most of our time is spent looking at what people do, and the first two chapters of your book, you're really trying to tell a kind of history of the oceans without any humans around. And uh, it's an unbelievably diverse story. I mean, you touch on geology, paleontology, astronomy. And I was wondering uh, what kind of challenges that brought to you as a writer to try to tell that huge story without any people in it.
2: Those were some of the hardest parts for me to write. And I think it's probably not an exaggeration to say I spent a year reading science, various things to help with the natural history chapter. And I spent another year reading about early human archaeology, the the exciting work that's being done right now with early hominids and with early hominid and homo sapien and other kinds of homo genuses, species use of marine resources and indirect evidence of human voyaging and things like that, and trying to then turn around and render that in a way that made it into history was uh, was a bigger challenge than I had expected, um, but was very fun to do.
0: So it was fun ultimately. It just seemed like quite an incredible thing. And But I was thinking it would be exceptionally challenging as a writer.
2: Well, yes, I I'd, I'd be lying if I said that it wasn't. But what I was really trying to do was to sort of get those chapters written down, but also that those narratives help support the argument that the ho- ocean has a history that is connected to people. Yeah, um, and one of the reasons for that is because the ocean creates the conditions for life, and and I think we should take that seriously as historians.
0: Yes, yeah, on this issue of the ocean as a place of life, you you write in your book that ninety nine percent of the habitable environments for life on the planet are in the oceans and. I know that you are also uh, very much an environmental historian, and I was wondering if you thought that you know, given how much of um, of life and the environment is in the ocean, do you think there's a problem with the way that we think about environmental history now, where it's so land focused?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question, and i'll I'll circle around and answer it this way. When I first saw uh, a slide in a talk by a colleague actually, who's here at the University of Connecticut, Peter Oster, who showed that slide, and I've seen that slide in other um, science talks elsewhere since then, I was so struck by it. 99% of the habitable ecosystems on on Earth are in the ocean. Um, That's way more than the 71% of the ocean we're used to thinking about. And one of the reasons this had such a profound impact on me is because I've spent my career trying to encourage historians to think about the ocean, not just as a surface on which human activities play out like a stage on ships and and between places, but to really think about the third dimension of the ocean. That's something I I suppose uh, some of my friends might say I have a mania for. (laughs) But when I I saw that that slide, I thought, okay, so scientists get that the, the volume of the ocean matters. Now, let's see if we can really turn around and, and show how all of the ocean, including these faraway places like hydrothermal vents, matter uh, to history. And by that, you know, I think we, ass- we sort of assume we mean human history because we're making a distinction between natural history and human history. And I'm, I'm trying to convey in this book that it does matter, uh, and it matters precisely because humans have influence on the ocean and the ocean has uh, dramatically shaped human activities. And that kind of two directional flow is exactly what we we learn from environmental history.
0: The, uh, The kind of links that you make, I was struck by the fact, for example, that in talking about human migrations, you were mentioning that, you know, you cannot tell the story of uh, human migrations into places like Australia, or the appearance of uh, Homo uh, florentiensis in Indonesia, which I guess has been there for at least a few hundred thousand years. Without, they say a million. A million years? Yeah. Uh, without getting into this issue of, well, how are human beings understanding the oceans well enough to actually cross them? Yeah, it's not even a question. I was just really <laughs> struck by that. Well,
2: I was gonna say one of the things I've learned in, in the research I did for this book, and of course some of this research is based on scientific literature and some of it is more kind of primary source research like historians usually do. But what I learned from the anthropologists and the archaeologists is is kind of a, a twofold thing. I mean, one thing I learned is that the recent research is showing amazing and very interesting things about how long ago people and hominids um, before Homo sapiens have been Voyaging, which we know from this kind of indirect evidence, and using marine resources uh, in many different ways. But one of the other things that was super interesting to me was to look back into the archaeological literature of up to a few decades ago and realize what a profoundly terrestrial bias archaeology had, just Hmm. assuming that people wouldn't see food and didn't have the capacity to to, uh, manage voyaging. And it's not like some of this evidence wasn't known before, it was just kind of inconceivable in, in that world. And with the, the kind of greater awareness, as, as I understand it, of um, where sea levels were in the past and the dawning realization that that means that people who live close to the sea would have left their evidence behind in places that are now submerged, it is, it is really reframing the kinds of questions that uh, it seems to me that archaeologists and anthropologists are are asking about people from long ago
0: i was also really struck by the way that your approach to the ocean ends up changing things that we associate with the ocean but maybe in different ways like i was thinking for example you talk about the sublimity of the ocean you know it's a sublime place it's both beautiful and terrible those are things that people have talked about relative to the ocean since the late 1700s, but usually it gets associated with things like storms, shipwrecks, and you are turning uh, the attention of the reader towards the underwater world, these massive mountains that exist underwater, or the trenches uh, that go down deeper than any terrestrial trench, or these creatures like the megalodon, if I'm saying that right, the right way, (laughs) these 60-foot long sharks that used to live there. Uh, I'm just wondering, in the process of writing this, did did any of this surprise you or stand out to you?
2: Well, I guess one way to answer that is to say that I think in some ways, the fact that we are, many of us, are struck by these extremes in the ocean, the fact that the ocean has the tallest mountains, the longest feature on the earth, which is the, the series of mid-ocean ridges, uh, waterfalls, uh, the biggest creatures that have ever lived, the oldest creatures that have ever lived, and so on and so on. The fact that we're struck by those things is probably conditioned by the fact that we live in a culture that has been affected by those ideas of sublimity and romanticism, and things like that. And it is true that the ocean is kind of a repository for reflections along those lines so yes in some cases i was surprised and in other cases i wasn't but i was led to the the kind of dawning realization that really what we see when we look at the ocean is really a reflection back of what we bring to it and hmm. what we, we already think yeah. because the ocean in most cases is opaque and so you know when we see sublimity and when we see romanticism in the ocean that's largely because we bring it there and so then It prompts me to suggest we need to put on our historian hats and ask, well, who are the actors having these thoughts, and where did these thoughts come from, and what are the pieces of documentary and and artistic and literary evidence that help us uh, uh, see why people understood the ocean in this particular way at this particular
0: time? Mm. You were writing uh, in one of the later chapters about the 19th century as a time when mariners and scientists are beginning to discover the ocean as a three-dimensional place. And I was wondering if you could talk about what's driving that.
2: Well, I think, though I can't claim to be uh, an expert in the kind of 15th, 16th century, one of the things that seems to me um, that is happening is that new uh, interest in Various kinds of oceanic resources, especially whales and seals in northern ocean, north Atlantic, uh, is, is causing people to be aware of uh, animals that go underwater but have to come to the surface and breathe uh, parts of the ocean that maybe they haven't uh, visited before in such great numbers. And especially reporting back that information to learned people who start writing about these things. The Swiss naturalist Conrad Gessner Creating his his um, compendium of animals, both uh, real and imaginary, is are is the categories we would use today. But uh, he has these drawings of what don't look much like whales, but are obviously intended to be whales and seals, and he has them kind of right next to the sea monsters and people. And so there's a lot of interest in what is hidden under the waves, and, and that at a certain point in time. of coming off of the so-called Age of Geographic discovery and uh, heading into a period of intensified European uh, commodification of nature. That was happening with regard to ocean resources.
0: Did um, the way that these scientists looked at the ocean in the 19th century were they trying to understand it in the same sort of way as, you know, we sometimes associate with, let's say, Humboldt or other people who are trying to create this holistic vision of of the world um, and just applying that to the ocean? Or was it much more piecemeal? Was it a question of, well, we need to know how deep to put the telegraph cable and we yeah. need to know where the seals are, that sort of thing?
2: I think by the 19th century, it was much more piecemeal. And one of the reasons I think that is because... Um, simply rather than one person doing it, it was being done by different groups of people. So naturalist dredgers interested in the question of what lived um, beneath the ocean, and you had hydrographers wondering how deep the ocean was and how long a cable would have to be to to stretch all the way across the ocean. So I, I think it's pretty much more piecemeal in the 19th century than it was earlier.
1: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
0: One of the things you talk about in your final chapters, and I know this is work you're doing now as well, is on the idea of the ocean as a frontier. And you start that chapter talking about how the frontier is this iconic place in American culture, uh, something in the 19th century we associated with the American West and was, you know, it became this symbolic and cultural. Structure, something that academics like us talk about all the time. And then it gets applied to the ocean, the deep ocean in the 20th century. I'm wondering how much the 19th century American frontier shaped the way people thought about the ocean in the 20th century. And then, uh, as a kind of follow up question, why did, let's say, that deep ocean frontier turn out so differently from other frontiers like the space frontier?
2: So to start with your your initial question, the 19th century ideals shaped thoughts about the ocean very directly. And I would point to the work of Gary Kroll, who's given us some amazingly evocative examples of comparing whales to bison as creatures that would sadly inevitably become extinct and we should learn about them before they do. This kind of posture that many naturalists who thought about whales in the early part of the 20th century had. Let's learn about them. It was kind of a kooky moment when a few people started trying to think about ranching them the way they ranch huh. bison. But, um, so so there were certainly direct influences. The influence that I found to be very important to to come to terms with for understanding how the undersea was constructed as a frontier in the 1950s and 60s after World War II was Kind of nineteenth century, but it was also kind of a twentieth century thing. It was mainly the idea of the frontier as articulated by the American historian Frederick Jackson Turner, who um, did his work between kind of the eighteen nineties and the nineteen twenties, and and it was his argument that the frontier had a kind of formative uh, influence on American culture and democracy that was available as a kind of a comparison point for people in the post-war period to look at the ocean and say, well, just like the West, the ocean has raw material, it has food, it has things that can help us develop industries. So the vision in the post-war period was that the oceans would be industrialized with fancy high-tech stuff, and there would be um, underwater engineering companies kind of like their aerospace companies. Now and and so there was this uh, today you see lots of people talking about the emergence of blue economies and blue tech sectors and that was quite similar to the vision that people had in, in the 1950s and 60s and the set of expectations they brought to the ocean that that uh, in fact we should want to industrialize the ocean that isn't necessarily how we feel uh-huh. today but that was that was very much uh, alive.
0: I was wondering if there was a difference between, let's say, the way that people thought about the West as a kind of place where you come up against, well, my understanding of the whole Turner thesis was that uh, you had people from the settled East heading West and in the process interacting with uh, American Indians and uh, coming into confrontations with nature and in a way rejuvenating this kind of American spirit, American exceptionalism. Does that still exist in that way? I mean, if you're building, let's say, you know, ways of resource extracting the oceans and high-tech habitats and that sort of thing, it sounds very different.
2: It The visions of it that I see in the, the sources that I looked at don't so much focus on the transformation to the humans or the human society. Uh, it's more of going to be an engine for economic development, uh, expansion for space for living, for people in general, you know, a solution to world hunger because, of course, you can feed plankton. Always imagined feeding plankton to the poor people and keeping the other food for the rich people. But, you know, so these, these visions were certainly not egalitarian. But uh, I would say some of the people who, who um, really embraced these visions were internationalists, uh, and so they were envisioning mm-hmm. a time when um, nationalism would fall away and there would be one more government and that was considered a good thing. People like Arthur C. Clarke, uh, who was also the space futurist. Um, and then other people mm-hmm. were really more in it for um, developing the economy of Hawaii or developing the economy of San Diego, these you know, places where they thought that these, these blue economies would take off.
0: Simultaneously with the idea of the ocean as a frontier, you also talk about how it's becoming a place of popular culture, that beaches that, um, I guess, in the 1700s and maybe even the 1800s were kind of reviled, are now a place where you want to go and spend your vacations. Uh, people are watching television shows about Jacques Cousteau and... Following the newest kind of sea habitats uh, with a lot of interest, do you think that grows out of the frontier thing, or is that kind of? Um, I guess, I guess the question is, why do you think all of the popular culture stuff is happening at the same time that people are talking about this as a austere and extreme um, space as well?
2: I think the answer to that is very, very tightly connected to one particular invention which is the invention of the Lung, mm. uh, which led to the widespread adoption of scuba, and, and kind of relates to a question you mentioned earlier that we didn't circle back to, uh, the difference between the undersea and outer space in the post-World World War II period. And that is that the ocean became very much an accessible uh, place, uh, an accessible frontier, if you will. That was often in the, in the kind of minds of these ocean enthusiasts, Uh, Articulated in comparison to space, while only a few people can go to space. Well, space doesn't actually have all these uh, amazing amounts of natural resources that we can exploit. You know, there's uh, there there's a sense that the ocean is more reachable and more potentially going to deliver what what people need uh, in the world right now.
0: One of the things that I feel strongly about when you look at things like polar exploration and space exploration is you really begin to see how important rocky structures are to human human exploration. <laughs> you know, it's it's rare that you have let's say a voyage uh just out to various points in space. They do happen. You do, you know, we are going to post the uh the web telescope at one of the Lagrange points in space. But for the most part we get really excited about planets and f- planting flags, you know, in rocky surfaces and I know you have you and I have talked about this that there's a kind of bias towards um, terrestrial spaces. Well, you've just written an entire book about kind of reconfiguring global history from the perspective of a non-terrestrial space. What do you think the biggest biases biases are? In, as you look across this this you know huge expanse of time, um, in which we kind of get it wrong, in which we're looking at things from a to terrestrial a point of view?
2: Wow. That is a (laughs) tough question. One of the things I could point to is that when I was in graduate school and and I suppose you too, uh, there was a point at which I felt like every single book uh, on anybody's reading list was something, something, something an Empire. Yeah. And none of those books had anything to do with the ocean. I now have a frame of reference that would argue against that pretty strenuously. That that the oceans were very, very tied to empire and knowledge of the oceans and ambition to operate in the oceans uh, had being able to create usable representations of ocean space. All of those things were very tied uh, to to empire and to science, and and that's a different perspective on that. Kind of period of history than certainly I received as a graduate student.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about this question as I read your chapter on Pacific Islanders, who were some of the first and most practiced, you know, navigators in the world, and how they populated these islands at extreme distances from each other, um, and the way that they've been described through. Uh, history as these really kind of isolated peoples living these precarious right. existences and you say like, well, no. I mean, they actually see the ocean as a kind of almost land-based space. And I was thinking like, wow, that is such a problem of history that comes from the framework which we're using to to look at them, you know?
2: Right. And there's there's a couple of really uh, excellent scholars that have kind of helped me understand this this framing: um, uh, Phil Steinberg's work on the social construction of the ocean, at Pali Hawafa's, uh essay "The Sea of uh, Seas of Islands," and uh, Joyce Chaplin's work on on the Pacific. But it really, putting those things together and thinking from an ocean perspective, you see that uh, the the Europeans saw and experienced the ocean very differently from the way Pacific Islanders did to the point where it, you know, it, it was experienced almost as if it was a different place. That's pretty striking.
0: It actually reminded me a bit of uh, Karen Routledge's work. I had her on um, a couple months ago to talk about her new book, Do You See Ice?, in which she talks about uh, whalers and explorers coming into contact with the Inuit in Cumberland Sound and how they're Their view of these environments is so so different but also because of the way they move through them their their idea of of home is quite different as well and and isolation too um i wanted to ask you i know that you live in new london and that you are a sailor and that you've done in your own life you've done a semester at sea as a college student and and that you've worked at mystic seaport in other words the sea is not just a a subject for you it's also a part of your life was there, are there any ways in which that experience, um, on the ocean has shaped your work or, or the reverse? Is there, are there ways in which your, your work has shaped the way you see the the ocean?
2: Mm, That's super interesting. Well, I definitely think about the undersea more often than I ever did when I was a sailor. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's kind of a silly thing to say, but it's also a very serious thing to say. Um, don't tend to interact with us we're a diver or something like that with the undersea. And so many of us experience the ocean kayaks and on beaches and ferries and um, swimming and things like that and the kind of profundity of that third dimension of the ocean is, is not apparent um, but it is very apparent to me now. I you know I guess the, the former part of the question, I would say I have, you know, I kind of consider myself a permanent, Slightly shy of an able bodied seaman, like somebody who barely is competent on a boat, even no matter how many times they go on boats, because I forget every time in the middle, and it just keeps me aware of how much knowledge that people who are who work on and in and with the ocean have and that was something that influenced this book because the 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 question I kept asking myself was, what did these groups of people that i 'm Interested in, in looking at and asking questions about uh, what did they do with the ocean, but then how did they do it? Which makes you sort of step back and say, how did they create knowledge about the ocean, and then how did they use that in the ocean? And then you can step back one step forward and say, well, how did they come up with the ambition to ask those questions? What, where did their desire? How did their desires make them seek the knowledge that helped them to use the ocean? Yeah. Having a certain amount of um, awe for people I know who are actually super competent on votes made me very aware of how much knowledge is, is embedded in operating here in around the Latin nation.
0: Yeah. Helen Rosudowski, thank you for talking with me.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat, Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at timetoeatthedogs, that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.